It's Sports Bazaar. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. Hang on. She's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. <laughs> stories to ever occur. We'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. Once again, uh, I am here on the receiving end, Mick Malloy. Well, this bloke, Titus O'Reilly, brings it to the table. What have you got for us this time? Well, Mick, this will be hard to believe for a lot of people listening. Yes. But the number one sport in America and Britain, going back to the 1850s through to the 1870s. Can I have a go? You go. Uh... Tennis. Nah. Basketball. Nah. 1850s to 1870s. Uh, badminton? <laughs> Close. Bowls. No. It's even more exciting than all of those. What are you talking about? Curling. <laughs> no. Pedestrianism. Walking. This was the favourite sport. It was blockbuster. You know, thousands of people coming to watch. This is going to be a short episode because <laughs> I I cannot fathom what there is to bring to the table regarding walking. Walking was. We're we talking about professional sports pro- walking. Not professional just, sports walking. Not just so, ambling. Not just it's not watching just people strolling. Stroll. was about how far you could walk in a certain amount of time. So it was endurance walking. And it was insanely popular. It came out of the 17th and 18th century in England when aristocrats, this is where you instantly know a sport is great. Yes. There's so many sports we've done, table tennis and There's snooker. Rich the, people sitting around with too much spare time. Spare on time. Heads. But also they often got, like with boxing, they didn't fight. No, they got their servants to do like it. mentors. Yeah, they were like, they'd pay for it and bet on it. They'd become like a patron of so, someone who would box. Exactly. So aristocrats would pit their carriage footmen who walked alongside <laughs> the carriage against each other who were constrained to walk by the speed of their master's carriage. Right. So they would pit them against each other to see who was the best walker. My bloke can outwalk your bloke. Yeah. So you could just see aristocrats who have way too much money and time on their hands. Just going, hey, why don't we get the guy that walks alongside your carriage to race the guy who runs? Feels like sh- flatland Sherpas or something. <laughs> yeah. They're not actually. Is that what a footman is? What's a footman? Footman, they just people that walk alongside the carriage, and then they would help with things like you know getting you getting out of the, the carriage, off. getting the luggage, just a general dog's body. As you know, that's what they were. Love a footman. This was sort of this weird thing. It started off slowly, but this guy called Foster Powell. He became the first great pedestrian of his era. <laughs> you telling me there's a Hall of Fame for pedestrians? Yeah, this guy's known as the father of pedestrianism. <laughs> Is that not the greatest <laughs> title you could have, right? Wow, okay. So he's born in 1734 and Foster Power is 28 in 1762 when he goes to London to work as a law clerk. Right. And he was a hard worker but all his fellow clerks 
didn't like him. They Why? called him a milksop and a muff. <laughs> you milksop. I'm going to do that to someone down the pub. Excuse me, you milksop. <laughs> it should come back. That's a head scratcher. If someone called me a milksop, I wouldn't know what to do. No, because you know the thing is, all the swear words are losing their power because everyone says it all the time. You say milksop, someone's going to stop. So what's that, someone who drinks a lot of milk? Yeah, but seen as someone who is infantile and can't take care of themselves and soft. Well, yeah, it's harsh words, right? It's hard to refute it. Yeah, it is. He was <laughs> described as a cadaverous-looking young fellow, <laughs> thin and apparently weak. He was thought of very little, either in respect of his mental or physical qualities. This is his fellow co-workers in the law firm describing it's him, right? a real right? sledge. Real sledge. They said he was a quiet, inoffensive lad, shy and somewhat unsocial, with nothing in the faintest degree remarkable in him. <laughs> Good Lord. The thing about this is one day he's working with them and they ask him, how are you going to spend your Sunday? They're all talking about what yeah. he, like the equivalent of what are you doing on the weekend. And he said he intended to walk to Windsor and back, which was 50 miles or 80 kilometres. For any right. particular purpose, or no, just he just liked long, exercise. solitary walks. Okay. Because if you, if all, everyone's calling you a milksop, what a milksop! So they all start jeering him and going, "You can't walk that far." You know, this was seen oh, as a well, that's a challenge. That's like a slap in the face with a glove. Yeah, and he loses his temper and says, "I challenge any of you to walk with me." Well, game on, mole. <laughs> exactly. Two clerks agree to walk. And off they go. The first companion dropped out after 10 miles. Yeah. And the second after 20 and he finishes alone and he suddenly got this standing in their eyes of actually he's pretty tough. Right, Right, he's pretty tough. So then he also then said, well, I'm going to walk 50 miles along the Bath Road to London. And he covered 50 miles and how quick he could do it. He did it in seven hours. I'm trying to do the sums. What's that? That's about 80 kilometres. It's a brisk walk. It's a brisk walk. We'll get into some of these distances, but to give you a sense, these are up there with what ultra marathon runners and stuff kind of do now. So it's like an impressive feat. But they're running. In these days, walking was a very general term because there wasn't the heel-toe rule that you have in walking now where you both feet have to be on. As long as you can get there. Yeah, it was. they tended to jog trot a bit and walk a lot because the distances get very long in this, right? So that's what they were sort of doing. Basically getting there. But it was about how far you could walk and how long it took you. Right. And he did it wearing a great coat and leather breeches. <laughs> so they did this this is long before active wear. No like hot pants or no. And he won twenty guineas. So he started doing this thing where people would bet against or for him whether he could do these things. So the public starts getting interested because they love betting and they're like, yeah. I bet you can't do it. So he starts doing it. So in seventeen seventy three he Attempts what becomes the standard, which is a six-day walk. So how far you can walk in six days. Now, the reason it's six days is it's the maximum period of nonstop activity you can do between Sundays, which are the Lord's days. You're not allowed to you're walk. You're not allowed to walk or do anything like it on a Sunday. Unless it's on water. <laughs> if it's on water, you're fine. By the way, can I just remind you, you're talking to a man who famously took 43 steps in one day. <laughs> I know. According to my Fitbit, 43 steps. But you tell me this like I should be shocked when I know you. And I was like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a big day. That's a big day for you. I deserved a lot. Well, I'll give you a sense of how many steps did you do? 43. 43. So he attempts to walk in six days. 400 miles or 644 kilometres. So that's from London to York is the walk he's going to do. Now, to put that in context, it's 216 miles or 346 kilometres from New York to Boston. Yeah. So this is a, a fair distance, right? Has this been done before? 
No one has done anything like this. He's the pioneer of this and he sort of sets it as a, something that people would aspire to do. Yeah, gotcha. So he sets off on this walk and he ate and drank toast, tea, water and beer. That was his diet for the six days. <laughs> right? He does it in five days, 18 hours and 10 minutes. So he managed to do 400 miles in... Just under six he didn't days. Didn't think of just going on for the next four hours, or no, no, that was it. So he'd done it, and everyone was like, "This is amazing!" And this was getting coverage, and everyone was crowds following him. him yeah, or, or do they wait? Obviously, you no, can't he'd have line to, the road. They would. You? He'd have to sneak out of villages to keep going and stuff like that. It became people wow. were following this and thinking, "You got to remember, no TV, no radio, no internet. You know, these were simpler times." I think one thing we're learning about our ancestors is things that excited them would bore the pants off yeah, us sure. now, right? So and then at age 58 in 1792, he even improved on this. He covered it in five days, 13 hours, 35 minutes, proving he was the greatest pedestrian of all time, he was called. Yeah, when you say that, is there anyone else doing this? They do start to do it. Others start to challenge him and they can't get anywhere near him. Huh. But that one, when he's 58 years, a few months later, he grows ill and they think it's from him pushing himself so hard and he passes away in April 15, 1793. He's 59 years old. And he is setting the standard for what's to come. No one can get near this. And it actually dies for a little while as a sport because people just can't get near it. They when he died, yeah. did the poor bears have to walk his coffin 400 <laughs> miles? <laughs> they had to do it against the clock. Sorry. So in 1822, a craze erupts in England to beat his time. Uh, Suddenly they uncover it. It's weird. It goes away for about 30 years and then suddenly it's popular. So from 1822 to 1825, hundreds of people try and beat it. It becomes this national mania of can you walk 4,000 miles? People barely can do it. One or two actually do break his record. The proclaimers? The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I kind of had to Google it. I, when I was Googling this, I wrote 400-mile races and it came up with proclaimers bits. <laughs> and then I wondered if there's a connection, but I can't find a connection. But uh, So this was a big thing for a long that's time. That's like the walkers, eye of the tiger. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were some interesting attempts in that time too. One guy, a guy called Richard Sutton in 1824, he's from Kent have to pronounce this carefully. He was the Kentish pedestrian. <laughs> it was his nickname. It's better than Milksop. <laughs> it's better than Milksop. He made his six-day attempt, but what he did is he did it on the lower Bristol Road in Bath. Oh, boo. And he did it, it was all downhill. Well, he did it without making a turn. So he went up and down the road, but he decided, I'm not going to turn. Now, what does that mean? He had to walk backwards for half of it. That should count. He would walk up the road get to the end and not turn and walk backwards the other way, going miles, he right? He would have been a house runway model. Now I'm going back. He did 300 miles in six days doing this. Well, and half of it backwards. Yeah. The Kentish pedestrian is, I reckon, setting a, the bar higher. The newspaper reported the powers of this pedestrian on the backward steps are truly astounding. <laughs> So it's getting written up like this. Around 1840, the idea comes in that you need to do what they call a fair heel and toe race walking style, which means you kind of... The sticklers. Always eventually ruin a good thing. It's to stop people jogging a bit. But at the same time, is rarely enforced. People still tend to jog, walk for a lot of it. Well, how do you monitor it? Well, that's right. you can't go with them, can you? It's too long. Anyway, at this stage... 
pedestrianism, it's huge in Britain, but hasn't really taken off in America. And this all changes with a guy who's going to be a big focus of this podcast, which is Edward Payson Weston. So he grows up in America. He's born 1839 in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. That's a well-to-do area. Yeah, is he very aristocratic well, as well? Or he's he... not really aristocratic. He, he actually moves around a lot as a kid with his father and other people. They're selling books and doing all sorts of things. He travels at one point for a long time with the popular Hutchinson Family Singing Group. They are America's most popular entertainers in the 1840s. Like the Partridge family of their days. Yeah, yeah, huge, huge, like the biggest entertainers in America at the time. They specialise in four-part harmonies, which I know you ah, love. I love that. <laughs> so he's no, doing really. this. I like to go a third above <laughs> in my harmonies. That's I'll another, do the high bits. It's another podcast. <laughs> in 1860, he's not famous or anything, he makes a bet on the presidential election with a mate. Whoever candidate loses the election in this bet, the loser has to walk to Washington to see the inauguration of the new president and Western bet against Abraham Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln wins. Idiot. How far are they from Washington? Well, as a result, in 1861, he had to walk 478 miles or 769 kilometres from Boston to Washington, D.C. in 10 days and 10 hours. Wow. But this is all for a bet, though. This is like, it's not as sport you lose. You pay up. While he's walking, he eats. He never gets more than six hours sleep. He's allowed to stop for sleep. He arrives in Washington doing this at 5 p.m. and was still strong enough after doing this to attend Abraham Lincoln's inaugural ball that evening. But the thing that happens (laughs) is... Was he dancing? Well, yeah, and he receives enormous newspaper coverage for this. So it becomes this, like, huge feat that they all cover. And he even gets a handshake from Abraham Lincoln saying, well done, (laughs) you better get me. Thanks a lot. So he becomes a bit of a celebrity off walking. Everyone says this is an amazing feat and there's all this interest in it and the president's shaking his hand. Are you telling me this starts a craze? Well, then the Civil War happens, which is a bit of a (laughs) only good for marching, not walking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, boy, could he march. He's always out in front of the troops. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, you guys. Hurry up. (laughs) Pick it up, fellas. (laughs) That interrupts him, but then in 1867, the war's over. He remembers, like, I was kind of famous. He gets a walking back again. Yeah, so he says, I'm going to walk from Portland, Maine to Chicago, which is 1,326 miles. How long? In 25 days, not walking on Sundays. I reckon I could do that. (laughs) It was for a $10,000 wager, which in today's terms is hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's a huge amount, yeah. While walking, he receives death threats from gamblers who bet against him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and his attack once. Oh, I bet he was. Despite this, he still manages to do it. He attempts it and everyone says, how great is this guy? How's gamblers? <laughs> now, if you've, you've made your bet, yeah. stand by your bet. You don't novel the So then he decides, walking. this is where he just starts to figure out, well, the public are interested in pedestrianism. They like watching people walk. It's exciting for them. So what I'll do is I'll announce I'm going to reach 400 miles within six days. Now, we don't know whether he knew about the earlier attempts in England at this point. Oh, you reckon he's just making this stuff up? We're not sure, but we think he might. So he made a $500 wager agreement that required him to reach 400 miles in five days, he said, so under six. Yeah. He needed to walk at one point 112 miles within a 24-hour period as well. So that was another bet within the race. It's held at the Empire Skating Rink in New York City, so it's actually indoors. Like a velodrome. Yeah. It can seat 10,000 people. Well, who's coming? Everyone. It is. It's full. It's 
full. To watch a guy walk around an arena. Yeah, absolutely full. And for six days, right? So everyone's got like people show up all through the hours, right? Are you cheering? Yeah, there's a Empire Rink full military band that plays all through it. Well, a guy walks. <laughs> well, he walks. A Mexican wave. Is there yep. a pitch invaders? There is there, Mexican there waves. Yeah. They do waves with their handkerchiefs and all this sort of stuff. On the night before the race, so this is a big event. It's on the front page of the New York Times. That's how big it is. It's covered in the Boston papers. It's covered everywhere. That this man is going to try and walk 500 miles and it's going to be the event of the year to get to. And everyone is. It's sold out. On the night before the race, Weston eats a supper of beef steak, fried eggs, toast and stew. And then on breakfast for the mornings, he would eat mutton chops, an egg flip, which is, you know, the drink, stale bread and eight ounces of coffee. Oh, well, that's like <laughs> doping, isn't it? <laughs> he is that a drug test? Is that? There were no, he does get in trouble later in life for eating cocoa leaves, you know, to oh, well, give, his, give him stamina. And why stale bread? Why not just bread? There is no logic to any of what's <laughs> going to happen. We're learning that sports sites in these days. I mean, this <laughs> just is thin on the ground. Yeah, I mean, this is it, like not long after they're doing strychnine and things like that. Yeah, so, cool. which we've covered. He enters the walking track accompanied by Old Bull, a famous Norwegian violinist. So, there's a bit of theatre about that. Now, this is what he's wearing, Mick, and this is where you're going to love this guy. He's dressed to walk for six days straight, a black velvet suit white silk hat with a blue sash, white kid gloves, top boots reaching to the knees on the outside of pantaloons, and he held <laughs> <laughs> and he held a gold mountain riding whip while he walked. I'm imagining Prince. They call him a fop even at the time, right? So it's like it's a real it's get up. Dandy. What's the whip for? Well, he whips his legs when he gets needs motivation, his own legs. <laughs> Wow. Self-flagellation is part of the walking experience. That would be good if you're in the crowd when he's... Yeah, he starts whipping himself. Whip, whip, whip. But to to give you an idea of how exciting this is for everyone else, this is from the newspapers at the time. They write, It was extremely exciting to watch Weston as he tripped with the agility of a ballet dancer over the path in a regular and well-timed step turning around on his heel each time on reaching the judge's box and taking a reverse course. Each time the band struck up an air, he beat the time with his riding whip, evidently cheered with the melody. Hundreds and thousands flocked to the enclosure, pay their 50 cents, see a dapper little gentleman in neat jockey garb <laughs> and tight-fitting shoes make a few rapid strides around the circle. Said he was full of fun, marching slowly in time to the music, walking backwards and changing hats with one of the doctors to the great amusement of the crowd. He's a showman. <laughs> He's a showman. So this is all getting covered. Every day is like front page news. Now, they all say that he walks funnily. He actually swings his hips like modern race walkers do, but at the time this was seen as very odd. What's he up to? Yeah. But one reporter wrote that Weston walked with a splendid sweeping stride that carries him over the road like the wind. (laughs) But others were not so complimentary. One said that his gait was wobbly and another observer said Weston's legs were put on like two toothpicks stuck in opposite sides of a potato. (laughs) (laughs) That's very critical of a guy's 
out there walking it. The newspapers of the day, the stuff they write, you they, would not get away. Them? They hate Western and we're going to get into this, but they write about him in a way that you just couldn't get away with today. Like wow. we think, you know how we think today's media is, you know, very partisan and bullying and stuff. Mm. There's this idea that it wasn't always like this. It's worse back then, right? During day three of this, he's going okay, but he tries to do 112 miles in a 24-hour period, which is part of his bet. Sure. But fatigue and sleep deprivation hit him. And they say every now and then his eyelids would droop and the muscles of his face would become contracted, showing the nature was more powerful than his indomitable will. An alarming report comes out that by hitting his legs with the riding whip, they'd started to bleed (laughs) to wake himself up. Eventually he realises he's not going to get to 400 miles. He finishes the evening on the last day on 320 miles, so he doesn't get to 400. Well, sure. Well, sure. Is the crowd still there or have they gone early? They're all still there. The doctors announced he was affected negatively by the tobacco smoke that filled the rink. Because <laughs> everyone's just smoking. Yeah, everyone's smoking. However, this is where the newspapers, rather than saying, like, no one in America has done this before, they say, they instantly go, it's a failure, and they call it a foolish attempt straight away. So there is love. In June 1971, it's announced he would try again, and he's in his usual velvet suit, but after three laps, he takes off the vest and the hat. He's serious this time. What is he? It's like a Diana Ross style costume change. <laughs> yeah, costume change. He's still wearing velvet pants and shirt and pantaloons and boots. It's not like he's in runners, but to him, taking the vest and the hat off is like, here, I'm serious. He realises that by the last day, he has to get 80 more miles to make the record. So he's close, but his feet are pretty swollen. So for the final 30 miles, he exchanges his velvet suit for silk tights. (laughs) Just some silk tights. Got 30 miles to go. People go, he's going to do it. So everyone in New York tries to get down to the arena. Well, for this the is... last 30 miles. There's no need to hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Run, don't walk. Yeah. <laughs> so they all get down there and it says, during the last five miles, this is from the newspaper, both Western and the audience were aroused to an intense state of excitement, cheering almost continually. For five miles, I cheer just nonstop. And Western winning applause by walking backwards, running, jumping, and performing many playful tricks in order to demonstrate <laughs> the large amount of physical force he yet had in reserve. He is on. During the last lap, with 80 minutes to, to go until his time runs out because it's against the clock, he finishes 400 miles. So it's four days, 23 hours, 42 minutes. So They go bonkers? They all go bonkers and it's huge and everyone is like, this is amazing. He's done it. He said he was going to make that day. Yeah, it was like that sort of thing. He then decides, well, I need to do something else. So he decides that he's going to try and walk 500 miles in six days. Now this is... This is crazy talk. This is the medical experts are going. It can't be done. He's still this in is, an arena. I'm like, I think he should go outdoors. No, it's arena. It's arena, right? So he decides he's going to uh, do this, right? He announced he's doing it at the same place. The Boston Herald writes an editorial saying he can't do it. It's, it's impossible. impossible. Yeah. One writer, though, says that it's a great idea and he's setting a great example. They write, the example of Western will induce our young men to use their legs rather than the streetcars because he's like trams, mm. to the great benefit of their health and the much-needed relief of the public conveyances. By going to see him, citizens will gather useful information concerning the art of walking, in which most of them are profoundly ignorant as if nature had not gifted them with legs. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's copying a spray. They're copying a spray. 
So this time he decides he's going to wear a loose black velvet sack coat, mm. black velvet knee breeches, black leggings. They're pantaloons. You know it. Call them what they are. <laughs> High-laced walking shoes, a white hat, and a blue silk scarf. And in hand, he covers his famous riding whip once again. Now, during breaks, he decides this is where the sports science starts to come in because yes. this is an endurance event. Yep. He would lie down in a cot in front of the judges' stands and he'd have his legs rubbed down and his head and arms washed. Someone would feed him broken crackers soaked in coffee. So they'd crumble up crackers, soak them in coffee. That's what he'd be fed. Yes. Other times when they were, he was resting, whiskey would be poured through tubes into his shoes which is thought to stimulate the circulation of his feet. <laughs> Can I ask what everyone's doing while he's doing this? Is They're the crowd watching. Still stay? Yeah, the crowd stays. They come and go. People come for a few hours and leave because it's, a, you know, a six-day event. But, yeah, there's like, at night it sort of gets quiet, but most of the rest of the time. When he's sleeping? He'd sleep sometimes at night. They'd time their rest and their breaks and things like that. But you didn't have to rest at all. It was up to you. You're, you managed your own rest. But, yeah, the crowds would be there a lot. Okay. He also had his stocking soaked in whiskey as well. They believed that whiskey made his feet and ankles capable of more endurance. We've all tried that. Oh, well, that's my excuse. When I come home smelling of whiskey, <laughs> I've just been trying to improve the circulation in my legs. I knew I had to walk home from the yeah. pub. Now, he did successfully reach 115 miles during the first day, which was part of this wager So he's on too. course. Yeah. And it's rumoured that wagerers against him lost $50,000 betting against that. Idiots. So huge amounts of money. Not on the first day. You wouldn't bet against him on the first day. I know. He's limping by day four due to the lining inside a shoe that's sort of rubbing him the wrong More way. More whiskey. And by day five, it's obviously he can't make the 500 miles. The crowds still come to watch. It's absolutely packed out this to? building, thousands. He gets to 430 miles. So it's seen as, you know, a failure once again. <laughs> one, hard markers. one paper writes, the great American fizzler. <laughs> so they just bag him so hard every time. If he fails, wow. they bag him, right? But at the same time, he's making pedestrianism, as it's called, really popular. That's right. Retailers get into this. Tiffany & Co., the famous jeweller. High-end jeweller. They peddle a remarkable new invention called the pedometer that counts your steps. So they actually, Are you serious? Yeah, so they're like, buy our new pedometer. It's an amazing new invention. Incredible. Another cobbler invents a new walking shoe with built-in springs. Hello. Now we're talking. <laughs> and then another guy writes in the Virginia Quarterly Review, it seemed as though the muscles of the nation were making one final vast collective effort before being replaced by the internal combustion machine. So people are walking everywhere. Mark Twain gets infected with this walking fever in November 1874 at the exact same time and inspired by this. Yeah. He and a friend attempt to walk the 100 miles from Hartford to Boston. They gave up after 10 miles and catch the train. <laughs> Did they get bad reviews? <laughs> yeah, they just fizzler. All sorts of pedestrians emerge trying to like claim Western's crown and they come up with new ways of trying to get attention. Like, One walked eight miles underwater with a snorkel. <laughs> Another sought notoriety by walking around Boston Common carrying a beer keg. <laughs> This is just attention-seeking now. Yeah, there was one-legged walking matches and backward walking matches as well. So they were all sort of – now, the thing about it is the times and distances, you know, which were kind of amazing, you became a superstar. So some of them – there was one guy, a guy called Charlie Rowell, who was the Cambridge wonder. 
He once earned 50000 by winning two races in New York in 1879, which is the equivalent to about a million and a half dollars. In 1874, a guy called Edward Mullen steps forth and says, I'm going to take Weston's record here. So I'm he's still the king. Do it. Weston's still the king. But this guy says, well, I reckon I can get to 500 miles in six days. I reckon I can beat nah. Weston. So this 500 miles, this threshold becomes It's like the four-minute mile. It's like the four-minute mile of its day. And so everyone's going, can't be done, can't be done. He says, I'm going to do it. He's got no record in this, but he decides to do it. He's dressed in a full walking costume, which is a white Guernsey, blue silk trunks with white hose and Oxford shoes. What so, are they? <laughs> like leather kind of <laughs> like business shoes. I'm going to do it in gumboots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, they'd actually probably be better than what they're all wearing, you know. By day three, he'd reached 233 miles but was in bad shape. On day four, though, a New York Daily Herald reporter was watching on because all the newspapers yeah. are there. And he looks and he suspects that a trick's taking place because he's watching Mullins paces per lap and counting them out. And he watches for hours doing this. And he concludes that the pace that he was walking didn't match the time and the distance that were being announced. Because each time they do a lap, it would go up on a scoreboard or someone would, the judges would be cooking out the that. books. No. He, he starts to think there's something wrong with this track. He also noticed that Mullen was taking rests that were more than twice as long as Weston had during his walk. And yet somehow Mullen was keeping pace with Weston. What's going on? So the reporter in a break when he's off sleeping, when Mullen's off sleeping, paces the track and works out it's short. So they find out it's 65 feet shorter than what it's meant to be. Boo! So it's not the same track. It's a different track. Oh, this is unbelievable. Saying that each lap is 305 feet, but it was actually 240 feet. Well, that's just terrible. Yeah, so... Was this... So did he This is exposed. Mullen claims... While he's running. Yeah, on day four this all comes out. Mullen proclaims his innocence and says, I didn't know it was not measured correctly. And he writes a letter complaining about all this... The idea is he's exposed, yeah. Now, at this point, a guy gets involved, P.T. Barnum. (laughs) Jesus. Who is the great showman of of the era, you know, running. Ringmaster. Ringmaster, circuses, freak shows, as they were called then, all this sort of stuff. He's promoting all this. Now, he has bought an entire New York City block between 4th and Madison Avenue now. It's between 26th and 27th Street. And he names it the Grand Roman Hippodrome. (laughs) <laughs> and what's he doing with this? It's a circus, so he has big shows on all the time. But he decides, oh, walking in an popular. entire block. Yep, and it's got a big, huge tarpaulin over it. Like a, it's almost like a massive circus tent. So it's this huge thing, costs him a fortune. And there's elephants and all sorts of bands playing and all sorts of things. He thinks walking is a great way to get people to come in, and they go for six days. So you get people coming through all the time. It's great. He's got an eye for this, hasn't he? And he's got a real eye, and he's great at promoting it. His first one he does is postman races. So he gets letter carriers (laughs) who he thinks are good at racing to race against each other. So now they're racing against each other. Yeah. Finally. He's the one that starts to see where you could do this, but there's still the racing against the clock too, so they have raised it. He decides to get Edward Mullen to attempt this 500-mile walk again, but this time on a properly... Measured track. out. A sanctioned It's track. a $5,000 bet that someone bets that he'll fail. So the money on it is huge. He doesn't make it though. He f- it says he fell so disgracefully short of the mark that the manager of the Hippodrome at the conclusion of his performance on one day put a stop to the affair and said, don't do it at all. But Barnum thinks, I still got a lot of people through the door. I just need a good walker. I'll go and get Weston to do this. 
he offers a huge amount of money to Weston to come and race here. Now, on his arrival, Weston arrives to race at the Hippodrome and he receives a Russian leather cap studded with flowers in red, white and green <laughs> from a famous English actor called Edward Askew Southern. Now, Edward Askew Southern... No, not ringing a bell. He's one of the first people probably ever called a comedian. On his gravestone, and you've got to remember he's dying at sort of the end of the yes. 19th century, it says comedian on his gravestone. Where is this? Is this vaudeville? He was this? an actor and a comic actor basically, but he became famous for his magic tricks and practical jokes. His passion for which they said amounted almost to a mania for practical <laughs> jokes. His friends would demand clerks sell them goods not carried by a store in question. They would stage mock arguments on public omnibuses. They'd run fake advertisements in newspapers. He'd often claim that he was dead into the newspapers. <laughs> he would pay street urchins to annoy passers-by. Which is <laughs> good old fun, right? I think we missed the street urchins. I like it. At one restaurant, he and a friend removed all the silver and hid under the table. When the waiter found the dining room empty and the silver gone, he ran to report the theft. By the time he returned, they'd both reset the table and were sitting there as if nothing had happened. Oh, that is gold. So he's doing all this sort of stuff. At one point when the husband of another famous actress, Adelaide Nielsen, her husband Philip Henry Lee visited New York and he met Southern and he'd been warned that American authors had quite wild bohemian behaviour. And he says to Southern, I don't believe this is true. And Southern said, oh, it can be, it is true. He arranged a private dinner with 12 writers and critics, but they were all really actors, right? <laughs> During the dinner, a quarrel arose over literary matters, culminating in a fight breaking out. <laughs> the men apparently drunk brandish axes, knives and revolvers. <laughs> The this room, is very elaborate. The room's filled with shouts, shots and a struggle. Someone thrust a lot knife into Lee's hand, the guy who's there, the, and says, defend yourself. This is butchery, sheer butchery. <laughs> and Southern invites him, keep cool and don't get shot before they admit it's all a joke. It's all there to set up. It's like a candid camera. Yeah. Another one, he, he puts an ad in the New York Herald. <laughs> and he says to a guy called Mr Florence, who's a fellow actor, he puts um, an ad in the paper and it says that he wants 10 dogs and he puts Mr. Florence's address yeah. and he says, any dog men should apply at 7 o'clock in the morning until 3 in the afternoon <laughs> for three days at my residence, bring your dogs. So the next morning at 8, the street in front of the house is crowded with men and dogs fighting their way to the front step. <laughs> uh, he gets out of the bed, this Mr. Florence, and looks and he looks and he just can't believe what's going on. There's just this crowd <laughs> of men with dogs. They're all saying, Mr. Florence, here's a dog, buy my dog. And he's going, what is going on? Yeah. Like he can't believe it. His wife comes to the window, took one look at it and says, well, this is Southern doing a joke. Southern. And then she goes, there he is. And Southern's in the um, <laughs> crowd and at the top of the vo his voice is saying to people, who is this madman that wants all these dogs? What is he up to? Southern loves it and Hilarious. laughs and himself things and buys a Sky Terrier from one of the men and then leaves. <laughs> my work here is done. And you. So this is the sort of the people coming to these. It's a, he's a big star he's and he's at the races. So at this race, Barnum's got Weston to try and write, do the 500 miles. At 32 miles, Weston has stomach issues and he lays in his cot. He's fed chicken broth and coffee. And eventually his doctor takes him, gives him a sedative and a laxative. So things aren't Jeez. looking round. No. At this point, uh, he comes back out. He gets a heart rate of 140 and is diagnosed with congestion of the brain. 
he keeps walking, but he just can't do it. And it's seen as another failure at reaching 500 miles, which people say you can't do. This is the newspapers. New York newspapers headline is, as a failist, Western is a success. (laughs) Chicago, it says another Western fizzle. In Detroit, the headline was simply, as usual. Oh, wow. In Vermont, it's the great failist. In Pittsburgh, they write, Western the walkers doesn't amount to much when footed up. In San Francisco, this effort has been the worst failure he ever made. And Rochester said, with every failure, this remarkable man becomes more cheerful and exasperating. (laughs) In Pennsylvania, they want him to stop. The newspaper writes, what an egregious humbug the man is and what enormous fools are those who encourage him. What is going on? So they're just totally It's a pylon. Yeah, it's pylon. Barnum says, look, you need to go again. Let's do it again. It's making a huge amount of money, but the papers are catching. And the, the public are enjoying it. The public are loving it, right? And everyone's like, this is like the moon race, you know? It's yeah. like, can he do it? He gets a blood blister on this one and doesn't make it. The press has been critical already. They said, if he fails, it will. The truth must be told. It will disappoint nobody in particular. <laughs> I just love the way they ride That's at this time. fantastic. It's a really punsy sledge. Yeah. At the end of it, he doesn't make it because of a blood blister. This is his third attempt. So... The Brooklyn Union newspaper writes, he has got an insane delusion. The Brooklyn Argus said, Weston could have a bright future, but would not experience it until somebody soars off his legs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So he tries again. He's failed three times in New York City and the city is treating him pretty poorly. So he decides to leave New York City and he decides to go basically across the river, go to New Jersey. That's a shame. I was yeah. hoping you were going to say they offer him he a pulls he- one out of the bag and yeah. everyone eats humble pie. No, they offer him a bunch of money. They say, come to New Jersey, we'll look after you. Sure. So he says, okay, I'll, I'll come over there. And it's a bit like big sporting events now. People try and steal like yeah, F1 Grand Prix yeah, yeah, yeah. events and all that sort of stuff. His doctor decides this time to stop blood blisters that he will pickle his feet before it. He, <laughs> that means he soaks them in salt water. For a long time before the war. And brine? Basically puts him in brine. (laughs) Now, on this one, he's got a lot more support. People are really into it. But as he's getting close on day five, he's approached by people offering him thousands of dollars to throw the event. He tells them to go away, but he gets word that New York roughs are plotting to sabotage his remaining effort by throwing pepper and other chemicals at him. (laughs) So the New York mayor arranges for protection from the police and promised to call in the military if need be. <laughs> wow. So this rink is full. Everyone is absolutely there. Uh, Mayor Perry, who's called Threaten the Thing, he walks with him but quit because he couldn't keep up, causing the crowd to laugh hysterically. He gets booed off. Yeah, he gets he booed get bad off. reviews. In the final hour, he's about to get very close. The crowd is so big that the chief of police and 50 officers have to walk around him to clear the track and keep the crowd away. This is how popular it is. There was not an inch of room either in the galleries or on the main floor and the announcement from the judges' stands were awaited with breathless suspense. So this is all going nuts. After walking 58 miles without a rest on the last lap of 500 miles arrives and he does it. He gets the 500 miles. Yes. And this is seen as... This amazing thing. And the papers grudgingly. What do they say? Weston has won his walk. This is in Brooklyn. We feared he would. 
<laughs> he deserves all the credit which must justly belong to any man who makes repeated and patient efforts to accomplish some almost impossible feat and finally succeeds. Another one in Michigan says, we take it all back. We have been among them who have experienced some relief in denouncing Weston as a humbug and a habitual boaster who never accomplished what he's professed his ability to do. But they say, now he's done it. We have to give him credit. The Boston Post say, well done, but we can't see any benefits to this. <laughs> they say, we can't see the benefits of a sport where a man walks round and round like a patient horse attached to a rural cider press. Jesus. It's relentless. <laughs> what has he done? He's, he's obviously aggravated them. It's because he's kind of a fop and a showman right. and, you know, this is it. But this is seen as like the four-minute mile. This is 500 miles. He's done it now. In six days. It's no one else is going to do this. Done. People accuse him and they say there must have been trickery or measurement problems. There's no proof of this. There's a lot of different judges and people who were independent who measure this all and say it's all legit. But yeah. people try and think. A guy called Professor Judd is seeking fame and fortune. He says, I think there's doubt in this. Weston needs to do something to prove that he's legit, he needs to compete against me and he's compete against something. So this leads to P.T. Barnum going, we'll do the first ever six-day race and Weston yeah. absolutely destroys him. <laughs> At this point, he is seen as the absolute hero of his pedestrianism and he's at the peak of his powers. Really, the sport's probably not going to go much further, it seems. He's done. He's Put done it and no one's rack. close to him. Well done. So a guy emerges who begins to suddenly challenge him and the two of these guys are going to become the Ali and Fraser wow. of their time. They really were seen like that. It was yeah. front page news everywhere in both England and America. Huge. Okay. So the guy's name is Dennis O'Leary. He is... I'm going to say from Ireland. From Ireland, born in 1846 and as a child he lived through the potato blight. Yeah, okay. So tough times. In 1865 at the age of 19 like many Irish people do, he moves to America. He gets to New York, can't find any work, goes to Chicago. So he's seen as a Chicago's own son. And Weston, just so we're clear, is an American. Weston's American and mm. from New York. Yeah. So this sets up the New York versus Chicago kind of rivalry in sports early on. Don't tell me the mafia start placing bets. <laughs> so he first works in a lumberyard. He then sells pictures door to door and then sells Bibles as well, door to door. So okay. gets a lot of walking. He's walking. In, clocking up a few clocking Ks. Clocking up the Ks. Yeah. The Chicago Fire of 1871 is huge. It financially cripples him. Everyone's homeless. It's a huge issue. So he has to start walking further to the out surrounding villages to sell these Bibles. Oh, he doesn't even know it, but he's in training. He's in training. So he doesn't even know. He overhears a group one day and talking about Weston's walking exploits and how amazing this guy is and uh, saying, you know, he's walked 500 miles in six days. And they start saying only a Yankee could do this. This is what's so amazing. Oh, this is like... O'Leary gets furious and he said if he dropped into Ireland on the way, he'd get beaten so bad that he'd never again call himself a walker. What? Everyone laughs at him. The trash talk has begun. They go, why don't you go then and hire a rink and do it yourself? Go mano a mano. If you think or you're so good. Or just on his own. Or just to, can you even do it, right? right. So he does. He rents the West Side Rink in Chicago and announced he's going to try and walk 100 miles in 24 hours. So this is another modest, strong mark. In it. Yeah, but it shows that you can do it. And he puts boastful circulars all over the city. 
<laughs> betting odds were four to one against his success. So in all of these, people are betting like crazy. This is very easily rigged, by the way, isn't yeah. it? Well, it has troubles as it goes along with some of that. They say he walks, and this is 1874, he walks onto the track with the air of a man who was determined to conquer or die. Big crowd? Big crowd. He's filled during the walk only with ice water and brandy, okay. which is an interesting way to do it. He does it. He's two hours slower than Weston's best over this distance and time, but it proves that he can do it. And so everyone says, oh, okay, he's not bad. He's got a taste for it now And Chicago too. gets behind him and go, our boy is better than Weston, oh, even though he hasn't done it. Yeah. He keeps challenging Weston and Weston's like, I don't really know who you are. There are heaps of challenges. <laughs> so this guy at this point is not really anywhere near it. Yeah. O'Leary decides, well, I have to do a six-day walk to we show go. my bona fides. Yeah, what's he said it at? So he says he's going to do 500 miles, but he weirdly gives himself six and a half days to do it. So everyone's like, okay. Not into this. So he does it. He completes it? Well, he's walking and while he does, he sips on beef tea (laughs) and during his meal stops, he feasts on beef, steak, eggs and coffee. It's a lot of coffee (laughs) in these things, right? It's helpful. He reaches 465 miles in six days. So not quite 500, but not off. But he keeps going and he finally gets to 500. He does it in 153 hours instead of 144 hours. So he's, he's ten, still not far not off. Not far mark. off, though. And he now has Weston's attention, I would have thought. Yeah. So suddenly everyone's saying these two have to race. Boston and they back O'Leary because they hate Weston. I got it. And the they, papers would be backing O'Leary too, from what I remember. Yeah. Boston says about Weston at the time because he won't take the challenge says, why can't somebody offer Weston $2,000 to walk against a sewn wall or a buzzsaw? <laughs> Jesus. So in 1875, October 30, it's announced that Weston and O'Leary will compete in a six-day race against each other. They haven't set uh, distance. It's just whoever can, whoever can do the most, most in should. six days. And are they doing it? Side by side, they start together. Weston insists that they build two tracks, an inner and an outer track. So they're different uh, distances. And then they, but cross, they cross over? No, there's a big thing about what if they bump into each other and all this sort of so stuff. So it's like a short course. And a, one's a shorter, one's longer, but the distance gets worked out. So it's how many laps you need that, to do. But so, is yeah. there a psychological advantage? Well, Weston you, insists you, on the inner track. Oh, does he now? The smaller track. I thought yeah. you'd toss for that or something, wouldn't you? What happens is the winner's going to get $5,000, the loser's going to get $250,000, and O'Leary's men offer Weston $500 more to cover his expenses. So this is hundreds of thousands of dollars. So Weston sure. suddenly goes, I can't resist this money. This money's too We're good. on. So they meet in the Interstate Exposition Building in Chicago. Weston wears a black velvet suit that he normally wears, his knee pants, boots, a light linen hat, a silk ribbon thrown across his shoulder. Pantaloons or knickerbockers? <laughs> he's got pantaloons, white gloves. You've got to remember he's doing his gloves. gloves. He'll wear gloves. Right? He carries his whip. O'Leary wears white tights, a striped tunic, and light walking shoe. He wears no hat and carries a pine stick in each hand. He's onto it. He's serious. He is serious. And he's got a sneaker, did you say? He's got a walking shoe. So I think it's like a leather shoe, but it's more built for walking than the boots that they're wearing. Then you've got Weston, who's this dandy, foppish guy from New York. 
yeah. and you've got the working class O'Leary Irish immigrant from Chicago. So this is like, you it's know, big ev- time, every it? great like sporting rivalry, you kind of want the differences. Is there a crowd favourite? O'Leary is more popular than Western. Western's weirdly popular with women, massively popular with the women. They love him. They love, watching him. they love watching him walk. <laughs> and there's all comments about how he excites the women and all this sort of stuff all through the newspapers. It's like Western would be above ground on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. And Dennis O'Leary right would the be bottom. right yeah. at the bottom. Now, Weston's often uh, walking. He often makes efforts to please the audience with gestures, songs, imitating actors and other recreations. He's a showman. He's a showman. So he's doing all this. O'Leary just... He's just head Junkyard dog. He's just yeah. all about... All business. Chewing up the turf. All about walking. The length of the line trying to get in is so big that you literally can't get into the streets around the arena. This People a- lining up hoping to... Because it's sort of one in, one out like a nightclub. <laughs> The protests of the building were surrounded by a surging mass of humanity eager to procure tickets. Excitement could not have reached a higher pitch, almost a wild delirium. Okay. To watch from men walk. This is how they described the crowd. People with wealth, brains from thieves and gamblers and roughs. Ladies are in large numbers. And so it's just this amazing thing. You've got dignified gentlemen in neckties standing next to the lower class cheering together. It's like a great race day. Yeah. Like the Melbourne Cup. Everyone happily suspends hostilities for one day, day. to all happily cohabitate Cor- on the one room. Yeah, and it's that bigger event. So they all go along and O'Leary is getting ahead all the time. How do you work that out? Because there's someone they keep a running the tally of distances, yeah. right? So all the time and then they'll go and rest. But each time they pass the judges, the judge will say, you know, that's mile 323 for O'Leary and then like that's 311 okay. for... Has O'Leary gone too early? Well, Western, everyone suspects in the strategy of these things, he is waiting for O'Leary to fall over. So he's pacing himself while O'Leary's going hey. hell for leather. Roper doping. He's roper doping. But on the last day, O'Leary reaches his 497th mile and chaos ensues in the place. People are going nuts. Wow. It says, at this time, the crowd seized the track and was driven back with the greatest of difficulty. Many are going through the ropes and they gather between the tracks used by the walker. So they're in between the two tracks too. Okay. Weston's looking very weary and dejected, but he keeps plodding along. And O'Leary finally clocks 499 miles and as he nears the judges stand on his 500th mile, a terrific cheer goes up in the air, hats flew up, the band plays, <laughs> and the pedestrian's wife presents him with a magnificent basket of flowers. He'd reached it in a record time of 143 hours, 13 minutes. Wow. He then continued and set a new six-day world record of 503 miles. Western reached 451 miles. He'd blown him off the part. He'd blown him off the part. It's a huge financial success. You know, in today's, you're talking about half a million dollars in ticket sales, and that's not including all the betting, which is... Insanely more. Both O'Leary and Weston are instantly wealthy. Can I ask you this? Were they friendly afterwards? Did they were fine with each other? Congrats. Yeah, they, they did a lap together. They did a lap together. Yeah, they were all. Oh, like, the crowd would have gone mad. Yeah, at that point. there was like so. There was a lot of goodwill. O'Leary and Weston are rich. O'Leary invests much of it into back into the, both the sport and buying a house and being sensible. Weston spends most of it on an extravagant lifestyle. He always spends more than he earns. He has two servants travel with him all the time. He's got all these 
velvet suits and everything. So he's sort of well, it's turned, hasn't it? He's got his own footman now. The yeah. walkers used to be the footman. Now, now they're employing. Them. He's the employing the servants. Did the, re- the reviews savage on Western? The reviews were actually pretty good, but one Chicago paper wrote. Old Western was beaten. The pampered and favoured child of the eastern metropolis was done for. (laughs) We should like to know how what New York thinks of herself. Notwithstanding this gorgeous triumph, New Yorkers will still be welcomed at our hotels and will be fed at the same rates as other people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Western gets interviewed afterwards and he takes his shoes and socks off and shows the journalist his feet don't have any blisters or bruises, but he does say... He lost because fumes from a furnace of a peanut stand bothered him. That old one. It got into his head and affected his sleep during the race. He said, the gas from the charcoal got into my head, though I did not notice it at the time. So he's the guy that always has an excuse as well. He wants a rematch. Yeah. O'Leary's like, I did it. He doesn't complain. He knows He's the solid guy of this. So in 1877, a rematch is set up. And this is after Weston has gone to Britain to race. And has blown everyone in Britain off the yeah. park. So everyone's like, this is amazing. Did so, he his confidence back? Is, is he in career best form? He's feeling very good about himself. But O'Leary hears that all the newspapers are reporting the success Western's having in Britain yeah. and thinks, well, I need to go over and show the British uh, what no. a real walker can do. While Western's there? Western's there. So oh, he heads this over. This is an aggressive play. <laughs> very aggressive. In 1876, O'Leary goes on a ship across the Atlantic Weston has done another 500 miles in a six-day race to show how good he is and just proven to the British he's amazing. So O'Leary arrives a few days later hearing that Weston's just done another 500 and everyone's saying, oh, it's amazing. And O'Leary's trying to say, I'm better than him. And he says, I'm desirous of forever settling the question, who shall be the champion pedestrian of the world? (laughs) He said, should Weston be desirous of entering into a side-by-side contest of 500 miles with me? I hereby agree to give him a start of 25 miles in that distance. Wow. So he's really calling him out. Weston ignores the challenge. He doesn't, he's getting all the, like, the spotlight. He's like, why would I, uh. I don't want to change this. He's also getting enormous money for product endorsements. Okay. So a bit like, like Michael Jordan with his sneaker. He's getting money for doing ads for a cream to help with rheumatism, sprains, chest colds. <laughs> yeah, he's got a line of pantaloons. <laughs> Active wear pantaloons. Yeah. So, well, Leary's just hanging out in England trying to get into a race against Weston. So he goes to Liverpool and beats Weston's recent mark of 500.5 miles in six days. Oh, so he comes out and does yeah. yeah. Sam Haig of Liverpool, who organises this event, he bet against O'Leary and then O'Leary does it. So suddenly the English say, of O'Leary, he is much prettier and a more rapid walker than Weston, but his dress is not near so neat as that worn by Weston. <laughs> so the British still like how he dresses. Sure. The interest is huge. So O'Leary is massively popular at this point and people are starting saying, we do need to see O'Leary get through this. Sure. So Weston's booked for another event, the Great Walking Contest of 1877, Ooh. and O'Leary works out, I can enter this race. And Weston can't avoid it because he's already announced. So suddenly Weston versus O'Leary 2 is on. And it's a huge amount of money because they're not only going to get paid and all these bets, they're also going to get a cut of the gate money. So this is like going to make them rich forever. 
the Sportsman newspaper, who I think we mentioned one of our earlier yeah, ones for, the, for the, the, racing scandal. the racing scandal. They're one of the big newspapers. They held the money as the stakeholder, so they were like right. promoting this. Now, Western has a backer, Sir John Astley, who is one of the top aristocrats, and O'Leary has Sam Haig, who'd bet against him in Liverpool uh, and organised that knows. event. He's now going, I believe in that, so let's do this. So what happens is Astley becomes sort of the P.T. Barnum of England. Yeah. He starts to promote it. And they have huge bets against each other. So they start putting huge months of money. So you've got the richest people going for this. Yeah. So it starts off on April 2nd, 1877 in Agricultural Hall in London. So it's this huge track. Western once again walks on the inner track, Yeah. as we've learned. Every newspaper in Britain prints blow-by-blow accounts of this race. So it is it is that And big. again, it's the most distance over six days. For six days. Six days. It says, whenever the two competitors come near each other, the crowd cheers and start cheering, go Western or go Leary. O'Leary early on drinks some beer that disagrees with him and forces him to make an early stop. So for the rest of the race, he <laughs> eats grapes, figs and strawberries. <laughs> The beer was no good. Leary sees with vomiting and has to stop for an hour as well. So he is not having a great oh, hello. time. Oh, so. Yeah, so the they're all. Western. <laughs> Western's right in. They don't really sleep that much. They're both trying to come through it and push through. But O'Leary on the second day turns the table on Western. He is up to 163 miles to Western's 150. So everyone's Sheesh. getting very excited about this. People notice that. O'Leary is just much more focused on the walking while Weston continues to <laughs> entertain the crowd. Entertain. Weston's eating strong beef tea, raw eggs beaten up and jelly. Okay. Someone wrote, seldom before, notwithstanding the many exciting scenes witnessed in the agricultural hall, <laughs> had its roof rung to louder shouts than greeted the posting of the scores on the scoring board. But O'Leary is pulling ahead. The crowds just get bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger all the time. O'Leary is walking, clutching a corn cob in each hand. <laughs> okay. So he gets asked by the press, why are you carrying a corn cob in each hand? He says, I think it is habit as anything else. They probably absorb the perspiration and keep the hands from swelling. In walking, I hold my arms up and work my hands across each other towards the opposite shoulder. I use the cobs at first because a light grip on them seemed to make me solid. They got me into the habit of walking with cobs and I've never been able to break myself off it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The band's having a great time playing music all through this. Yeah. The way it happens is each of the performers have a time where they get to choose what song. Request. Yeah. So it's like at a roller skating rink when they play the music, you can do requests. So basically Weston gets to say, oh, I want to have some songs. And then the next day, you know, Leary gets to what say. What was the style of the time, do you know? But the one rule is when one of them goes for a sleep, the band stops playing so they can rest, uh. right? So what O'Leary does is whenever it's Weston's turn for requests, he goes have a sleep. (laughs) It's on. There starts to be concerns about O'Leary because he's not sleeping much. And so many have noticed that his face denotes mental rather than bodily fatigue. Weston is naturally of a lively and cheerful disposition and jokes with the bystanders as he walks around the hall while O'Leary has a stern look. But at this point, O'Leary sets a new world record in 72 hours of 294 miles. Weston's at 274, so very close. So by day four, no one's really sure. O'Leary's looking very in trouble and people think he's not going to do it. Weston cuts his 
lead to just 15 miles and the crowd just keeps getting bigger and bigger the whole time. Still a long way though. It's still a long way. If you're walking through the countryside, you're 15 miles behind. Yeah. That's it's, a big lead to Yeah, oh, absolutely. Western by this point is limping on day five and 15. He can't win Western, I'm going to say. You're going to say? Yeah. The final day, more than 20,000 people go through the turnstiles to watch these two guys walk. It had been massively raised the price of admission on the last day. So good to see no things never change. One paper writes, we question if any walking match has ever excited so much general interest as this one. Pedestrian as a rule is not a sport about which the public concern themselves a great deal, but the magnitude of the present undertaking forced itself upon the attention. So this is where it starts to really take off in Britain. So O'Leary in the morning has got a pain left shoulder. He has to walk leaning over. To one side. He reaches 498 miles and Sir John Astley, Weston's backer, tells O'Leary's backer that they could stop the race if they wanted, that Weston was defeated. He later said that Weston had been weeping and could barely move. Mm. But there's no way O'Leary wanted to stop. He yeah. says, let's keep going. So at 1.50pm, O'Leary crosses the 500-mile mark, setting a new world record for the distance. The cheering and excitement when the board announced his 500th mile baffles all description. Many of those inside the enclosure ran around with O'Leary waving their hats and handkerchiefs. His friend, a Catholic priest who's seated on a chair outside his tent, calmly whispered a few words of encouragement to him. Some estimated that there were 35,000 people watching the final hours of the race. He exceeds his own world record 503 miles in six days. People go absolutely nuts. They can't believe it. And Weston? Uh, Weston is absolutely broken. Shattered. Shattered. He may never walk again. Can't believe what's happened. A couple of weeks later, Irish members of parliament hold a grand banquet to honour O'Leary at the Westminster Palace Hotel. Mm-hmm. They don't invite Weston at all. <laughs> That's a bit much. <laughs> Weston decides that he'll stay in England, but he's not happy. He's sort of beaten against O'Leary. The thing about it is O'Leary now is absolutely... Canonized, he's the new yeah. king. They never face each other again. They both go on to have careers, which we might cover off another time, but they never race each other That's again. Sad. Amazingly, Weston spends the remainder of his life urging others to take up walking for exercise and competition. Now, people say, you are not going to make it. One of the critics said, the illogical law that permits thousands of people to assemble and thousands of shillings to be paid at the agricultural hall whilst a couple of madmen under the pretense of sport, shorten the lives allotted to them in the <laughs> presence of police as surely as do suicides from the bridge of the Thames. Wow. So they're saying that this is going to end their life. Yeah. Now, it doesn't. Weston spends the rest of his life urging others to take up walking. He warned that automobiles would make people lazy and sedentary, which is not well, untrue. True. Ironically, Weston was severely injured when he was struck by a New York City taxi cab in 1927 and he as never walked again as a pedestrian. He died in his sleep in his Brooklyn home on May 12th, 1929. He was aged 90 in a time when the life expectancy was about 40 to 50. Uh. O'Leary at 80 decides to hatch a plan to walk to every state capital in the United States. No official results are available whether he did all of them, but they believed he got to most of them. Mm. He dies in 1933 at 92 years old. So he beats him by two years. (laughs) Now, to give this all context, the record now for a six-day walking event, which people do. In 1984, Yanis Kouros, who is from Greece but actually lives in Australia and has been an Australian citizen, he currently 
holds the record for how much to walk in six days, which is 664 miles, over a thousand kilometers that he did. Wow. So he's like almost doubled it since Did he do that in a velodrome or outdoors? <laughs> outdoors. Or outdoors on the track. And that brings us to the end of O'Leary uh, and Western. One of the great sporting rivalries. Of all Did time. they ever get on? Did they ever catch up with each other even in retirement? Or did Doesn't they ever really say. They, they were or... fired with each other. But, yeah, it was Leary kind of beat him but was huge. And it goes on pedestrianism, which we'll return to at some point in the future to become even more popular. Uh, not my sport. If you, <laughs> I need a ball. You know, no, give me a ball and I'll chase it. I'll do it. To me, that's not a sport. It's exercise. <laughs> Although the theatrics of it is pretty good it, and the class warfare and, yeah, you're right, there is. There's a lot for you. <laughs> Strangely, I want to be in the Hall of Agriculture <laughs> to witness a walk-off. Unbelievable. Titus, thank you again. If you want to get in touch with us, there's so many ways. Go to our website, sportsbazaar.com. You can contact us there. All the social medias and get kept up to date with what we're doing. And if you can, go on to Apple Podcasts and follow us there, but leave a rating. That has a huge impact on us in the charts and people finding us. So uh, thanks once again for listening, and we will see you next week.